As I mentioned earlier, this is the last Sunday of November. Next Sunday, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And so the church will be transformed into the Christmas season. And uh, around town, the Christmas lights are up. It's just the seasons are changing. We're moving into the, the holiday season, and that's an exciting time. In light of that, we're finishing off a series of messages throughout the fall. At first, we looked at the questions that Jesus asked. Questions, as we said, not for him to gain information, but he asked penetrating questions for people to turn their thoughts and eyes inward and to reveal something about themselves. It's incredible. And Jesus, as we see in Scripture, as recorded in Scripture, he asked a multitude more questions than he answered. In fact, direct answers, because you'll often see people will ask Jesus one question, and his answer will be something completely different. He won't often answer questions directly. He'll even answer them with other questions. What do you say? And uh, there's only a few instances where he gives direct answers. We looked at one of them last week, where seeing a man who was born blind. Remember in those days, if you healed a blind person, it was often, well, they said... That was a person who maybe their eyesight was damaged by an illness. So the healing really was the consequences of taking the illness away. It was something maybe a doctor, a medical science could do, though limited at that time. But for a person to be born blind, basically the eyes were recreated. In part, that might be why Jesus spit on the ground and made clay and then put it on the man's eyes and said, now go wash in the pool. Maybe he was creating brand new eyes for the man. But though Jesus saw the man as an opportunity to show God's love and glory through a healing because a man was in need and Jesus was about meeting the needs, remember that's not what motivated his followers. His disciples asked a theological question. They didn't say, Lord, could you heal this man? Please, I know born blind, that's that's a lot to ask, but could you heal him? Could you show mercy to him? Because all that's open to this man is a life of being a beggar. They never asked that question. They just said, Lord, who sinned to cause this tragedy? Was it the man's sin as a baby before he was born? Or was it the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, that's the wrong question. He answered that and said, no, you should be concerned about God's ministry, God's love breaking through in the lives and reversing the effects of sin through an experience of Jesus. This is the final in the series. We're going to look at another answer of Jesus rather than the questions. And this was, this was interesting. This one was brought about, the context of it is something that's well known to all of us in the ministry of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, Jesus fed the multitude, and then the multitude was pressing in. They were excited. They experienced an incredible miracle, and their stomachs were full, and they were excited. They wanted to make Jesus king. This is a man who can heal the sick, raise the dead, and feed the multitude with a little boy's lunch. That's the king we want to follow against the Romans. So Jesus withdrew from them, crossed the lake. But the crowd in those days, they were, like, they were like bird dogs after a quail. They were hunting Jesus, and they chased him down. They were running around the lake looking for him. And when they find him, they have questions for him, and they're, they're pressing in on him. And that's the context of this question that Jesus answers today. We look at the, con, the, the context uh, in the interaction with the crowd in John chapter 6, verse 27. I'll begin in verse 26. 
Or I'll begin in verse 25 before the screen. It said, when they found him, remember the crowd is looking for Jesus, on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answers, as he often does, something else. He says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Then he says this, do not work for food that spoils but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Remember the Holy Spirit descending like a dove? This is my Son of whom I'm well pleased, the seal of approval at the beginning of his ministry. And it was later in the ministry, it was, it was, we saw it again. But Jesus saying, You're working for food to fill your stomachs. In fact, that's kind of how our lives as humans boil down to. We use these to work to get this to put in here to feed this over and over and over. And Jesus says, that's not what life should be about. Don't work for food to fill your stomachs. He says, dedicate yourself to something that can fill your heart. Feed your spirit. This is what he's getting at. But again, the people, they misunderstand this. And they pick up on that concept of work. Because when it comes to work in Jesus, there is is almost the scent of scandal around this teacher. Because he, as we saw last week, he is constantly breaking the law. You say, Pastor, how can Jesus break the law? He's sinless. He's the Lamb of God. He was breaking rabbinic law. Remember, in those days, you had God's commands that were given to the children of Israel to set them apart from others, to make them a people special to God and visible to all the nations and how they ate and how they acted. But the rabbis, wanting to keep those laws, they added many, 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 many more. So many, in fact, that their whole religion became those laws to help them keep God's commands. As Jesus summed it up, your religion is just rules taught by men. And Jesus had no compunction in breaking those rules, healing people on the Sabbath and doing various other things that made him fall afoul of the religious rabbis and teachers of his day. So when the people ask about work, when we think of the work, because I've called the message the work of God, that's what the people ask about the work of God. When you and I talk about the work of God, we understand it's God's work in the world bringing his love, his salvation, the good news to a hurting world. And we show it through our actions and we understand these aren't really our actions when we're showing God's love. It's God working through us. There's nothing better than doing the work of God. You're tired at the end of that day, but it's a good tired. God has used you to lighten the load of a neighbor, to share the good news with somebody who is lost and seeking. It's good, the work of God. But that's not how the people understood it. That's not what they asked. The question they talked about was religion. They were stuck in that cycle of rabbinic laws, a religion of works. And so the first thing we want to look at is why did the people believe in salvation by works? You see before you a common, a common uh, illustration of that, the weigh scale. 
The way scale, as I've shown pictures in the past, but I, I, as a favor to a friend, I want to stay away from too much history today. The way scale is an ancient symbol of religion. In the tombs of Egypt, I've, so, I've shown on these screens, the Egyptians painted pictures of way scales about their judgment when they died. And on one side was a feather, so light. On the other side was your heart. And if the sin in your heart was heavier than a feather, you weren't making it into the afterlife. In fact, there was a monster who was going to eat your heart and eat you up. Boy, that's rough. But you see how throughout history, mankind's religions always weigh the good against the bad, whether it's karma, whatever. Even in Islam, the scale is pervasive. You think, well, Islam, it's all about praying. Well, it is praying five times a day. There's seven pillars, and they're all rules that you have to follow to have any chance to go to heaven. And they talk about the scale, the good outweighing the bad. In fact, friends, that is the essence of human religion. Salvation by works. And I ask myself, why is it that way? It's reflected, in fact, in the question we look at today. John chapter 6, verse 28. Hearing Jesus talking about working for things that, that bless your heart rather than fill your stomach, the people ask. Then they asked him. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus, we know you're, you're not big on Sabbath keeping. You're, 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 you're breaking a bunch of laws that the rabbis say are important. Tell us what are the rules. Tell us which boxes we have to check. Why is that the essence of all human religion? I think it's control. We don't want it to be outside of our control. We want to be able to know what it is. Just tell me. Just tell me and I'll do it. It's like a young couple. The guy wants to make his girl happy and it's hard to read sometimes. And men being kind of black and white thinkers, not picking up on all the amazing currents of emotions that women swim in that sea and we sink like rocks. We beg, please just tell me what I need to do. I want to check the box off. I want to do it. It's like when we come to God. God, just tell us what to do. Pray five times a day. Point toward Mecca. Got it. I can do it. Be very faithful to that. Then it's in my control. I'm in charge. That's kind of the human condition. That sinful mankind and our sinful dead hearts wanting to be in control. When it comes to this, I think we make a number of mistakes. Religion and salvation by works. Human religion, salvation by works. They're always the same. The first revealed to us in Scripture is that when we believe we can be saved by our good deeds and the good will outweigh the bad, we underestimate how sinful we really are, the sinful human heart. Oh, Jeremiah didn't. Jeremiah 17, God said through the, through the prophet, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? It's incurable. Our sinful human hearts are incurable. There's no good outweighing the bad when it comes to our hearts. We're fallen. We can't do any other. We need a new heart which is a promise of the good news of the gospel. 
Well, not only do we underestimate our sinful hearts, but the gospel, in the New Testament, James tells us in James chapter 2 that we also underestimate sin's power, potential. I call it the reach of sin. It's like you're saying, well, I'm going to drink a gallon of wholesome milk and just I'll take a little bitty eyedropper of this poison. You're going to die. Sin is that way. In the eyes of a holy God, a little white lie, any sin. That's why Jesus says sin is like yeast that works through the whole loaf. James says this to people who think they can please God by rule keeping. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. We underestimate the reach of sin. But, on the other hand, we always overestimate our goodness. That somehow my good deeds can make up for sin. That the good things that I do, no matter if you scratch them and underneath, there's always pride and selfishness involved at least somewhere. That my good deeds will somehow balance the scales or even overbalance them. Not in the eyes of God, a holy God and sinful mankind. As Isaiah says in the classic passage, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sin sweeps us away. We underestimate sin in our hearts. We overestimate our goodness. And when we do that, friends, and want to be in control, you have a recipe for human religion. And sad to say, the revealed truth of God found in the Old Testament had been plastered over through the centuries with human religion. And Jesus was constantly running against it and having to cut through that to get back to where it all belongs, a heart relationship with God. And for this, Jesus' answer reveals. What are the works that God requires us to do? They ask him for human religion. And in his answer, he cuts through it and he tells them of the gift of faith. The works God requires? Believe. Faith. Have faith in God's Son. That's his answer. It's a simple, direct answer. And one of the few times in the Greek, it says, they asked and he answered. That is one of the most rare uh, phrases you find together in Jesus' teaching. Verse 29, Jesus answered. He's directly answering them. Jesus answered. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. Now, if they had them, if you ever watch The Chosen, you remember Matthew's always running around with his little pad and he's always taking notes and everything. If they were there taking notes that day, they would have been ready for a whole big list of things that we could check off. And Jesus shocks and disappoints them. The work, you ready? You ready? Believe in the one he sent. And they're waiting, and? No, no, that's it. That is it. That's what he requires. This is the good news. Jesus brings the good news. He's our Savior. Believe it. Accept it. Open your heart to it. Be changed by it. 
And knowing how humans work, because we all do it, I bet they were already thinking, okay, faith, that's the work. And they're starting to think, well, what kind of faith will save? We see it. We Christians play that game. We hear it when somebody's sick and some well-meaning person says, well, you lack faith. You have the wrong faith to heal you. It wasn't really saving faith or this faith. And, and we even make, believe it or not, we make faith into a work. We just do it. We want to do it. But do you know, friends, that not even our faith is our own? The Bible is very clear that your faith, your saving faith, your ability to see Jesus as your Savior, open your heart to Him, pray the sinner's prayer, follow Him as your Lord and Master, it's all a gift as well. The gift, the word for gift and grace is the same in the Greek, charis, charis. For you're saved by grace. It's all a gift. And all you can do is receive it receive the gift but even the ability to see that as something you need and to open your heart to it that has to be a gift as well seminary professor years ago in coming to this asked the question what can dead people do what can dead people do Hmm. not much As Scripture tells us in Ephesians 2, 1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. What could dead people do? That's a cemetery. That's a famous cemetery. My only historical slide today. That is the Mount of Olives. The whole southern half of the Mount of Olives for the last 600 years has been a Jewish cemetery. And it's full of famous rabbis. They got permission 600 years ago to bury their dead near the the burial place of the kings from the Old Testament down in the Kidron Valley. And that hillside, they begin to bury their dead, and they have for 600 years, right outside the the old city walls of Jerusalem. There are 150,000 tombs on that hillside. Occasionally, a person can be buried there in modern times, but it's very difficult. They have to to make make room. But look at that. They're all dead. Nobody's moving. And if you stood there and you preached the good news, you say, have faith in Jesus, they can't. They're dead. And you couldn't either, for you were dead. You needed God to do something for you that you could receive Christ. You needed the gift of faith. The work God requires, believe in the one he sent. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. What can I do? The Bible says God gives faith. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1, a word that if you're in government, like the town, we have a grant writer. We're always asking for gifts. We're always asking for money as a small town from all levels of government. Any grant that comes along, we want to write up a, a grant request. That's an ancient concept. Philippians chapter 1 says... For verse 29, for it has been granted to you, and that is the word charis again, it's been gifted to you, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also, also to suffer for him. See how the Christian life goes together? God gave you the faith and the ability to believe on him, 
But you also have not only the life of Christ, but walking in his steps, the suffering that comes with that in this world. We've seen that the last few weeks. It's been granted to you. What can a dead person do? Not much. It can stink. We can't. We can't do anything. It's been granted to you. But the classic passage for this concept is found in Ephesians chapter 2. Once again, we go back to Ephesians 2 that said we were dead in our transgressions. Verse 8, for it is by grace, that means gift, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Unless you think faith is your part of the bargain, your work, that you have to gin up the right kind or the right amount or the right strength of faith, and this not from yourselves. It, and in Greek it's very clear that the it is speaking of faith, not grace. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You're saved by faith, or by grace through faith. And the faith, as well as the grace, the salvation, is a gift from God. It's all of grace. It's all a gift. That's humbling, because it takes it out of your control. That human religion is out the window. You're not in control. Only trust him. Lean on the everlasting arms. Stand on the promises. It's all of grace from start to finish. Only trust him. Only trust him now. And the trust is a gift as well. It's humbling, but it's a blessing all the same. So we finish by asking quickly, what about the good works? What about these good deeds? If they're not saving us, what good are good works? The role of good works. To let Jesus love the world through us. The great commandments, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. These are the good works that flow out of that living relationship with Christ. God wants to love this world. He wants to save this world. He wants to feed the world and clothe the world. And he wants to do it through his children. As we saw last week in the healing, Jesus says, come along, guys. Join me in this great rescue mission. The role of good works. As we finish, we know what it's not. They thought it was just boxes to be checked, but Jesus says, no, it's not. You cannot be saved by works. Titus chapter 3, Paul writing to Titus says, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, not by the good things we'd done. That didn't cut it. Human religion won't save us. He saved us by his mercy, by his grace. We're not saved by good works. Paul, again, makes that so clear in his great theological work. He wrote the closest thing to a systematic theology in the New Testament is the book of Romans. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Now when a man works, talking about good things we do, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. You earn them. And Paul says the wages of sin is death. However, to a man who does not work but trusts God, 
who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. Paul says the gift of salvation is a gift. You don't earn a gift. The only wage you've ever earned spiritually is death. But your salvation is a gift. Glory in it. You who are loved and saved by God, who are given the gift of faith as well, not saved by works. But again, Ephesians, Paul in that classic passage in chapter 2 says we're not saved by works, we're saved for good works. Verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Sometimes I'm afraid that when I get to heaven, there's going to be a whole list of good works that God wanted to love this world and do through me, that I was too busy, sidetracked on the things of this world and selfish things to do those things. Don't leave those works which were before the foundation of the world. Don't let them be undone. You're God's hands. You're his feet. You're his voice in this world. Let him love and save the world through his children. Not saved by good works, saved for good works. And we finish with Jesus' encouragement along that line. Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. At Randy's funeral, if you were there, we had a special number. special number was by Randy's father, who's home in heaven, Bert singing The Lighthouse. In that song, The Lighthouse, Jesus is the lighthouse. And we're like little boats lost in a stormy sea. He guides us home. But Jesus is at the Father's right hand. He wants his light to guide people to him. But it needs to shine through you and I. We're God's lighthouses in this dark world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. What a Savior. All of grace. You gave us your best, the sinless Lamb of God, to be our Savior. Lord, you even give us the faith to believe in him, to leave our dead hearts behind and receive a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone, dead by sin. Lord, we have that not just for our own blessing, which is manifold, but Lord, to be a channel of your love and your truth and your light into a dark and lost and hurting world. Lord, convict us that our little corner of the world needs your light. And it needs to shine through us today. Father, this is our prayer. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you and keep you.